Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the upcoming. Doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about all the best and the brightest as they make their way to their dream careers. I'm your host, Jonathan Carr. Join me as we have a spectacular conversation with an equally spectacular person. You ready? Let's go. Hello, world, and welcome to The Upcoming, the perfect place to catch the best and brightest on their way to the top. Joining me now for the upcoming 36th episode he is a lover of the earth, of just activism, of just helping change lives for the better, and of course, music. From Minnesota all the way to L.A., he is a singer-songwriter with some amazing songs like All You Guys Time and Fireflies, and his album is coming out real soon, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. And when he's not writing awesome music, he is also the senior manager with nonprofit Earthworks, and he is, he is committed to providing change for not just the indigenous, for people of color, but also just for everybody, for the earth. He's always looking for ways to how we can make the lives of others better. And so I am just so happy to have him with me right here. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Ethan Buckner. How's it going, Ethan? I am doing so well. Thanks so much for such a kind intro, Jonathan. And uh, so happy to be on the show. <laughs> awesome. So, Ethan, in the upcoming, I always let my guests introduce themselves. So tell us, who and what exactly are you? Um, so I, my name is Ethan Buckner. I live uh, here in Venice um, on the west side of LA. Um, I have been here for uh, just over four years now um, and uh, grew up in the Twin Cities and ended up spending some time on the East Coast for school and I've been in California now for a decade. I, I moved to LA from the Bay Area. Um, as you know, Jonathan shared, you know, my uh, Songwriter, my, my career as a songwriter is intimately linked with my uh, career working um, to try and challenge the fossil fuel industry and fight the climate crisis. Um, it's been a work that has been has driven me since I was in high school, um, and uh, really what became kind of both of both the songwriting and the activism sort of emerged from kind of both witnessing and experiencing. Um, being close to death and and feeling the need to try and live my life in service of life. And so as a as a high schooler, to me, I, I found trying to fight climate change, which I saw as an existential threat to life itself, as something that um, was the was so core to to what I wanted to do with my time in the world. Um, and processing all of that and, and trying to um, like express how I uh, am feeling and, and, and engaging with everything that's happened in the world and everything that's happened in my life, I found the language of songwriting as a way of processing that. And so to me, it's always been like, I don't really write a lot of very explicitly political songs. Like I'm not writing protest music or anything, but what I am doing is sort of, uh, it's like this necessary counterbalance, like the, the yin and yang in my life. And I think about, um, you know, the music that I make, not as something that you would necessarily like be singing at a rally, but you might listen to it on your way home, trying to process what's happening and then how you're feeling about it. Uh, that's a beautiful answer. Uh, it can be I guess, close to death. That sounds absolutely intense, but I, f I feel like I also feel the appreciation you've gained for life in general, just not just for the earth, but for in others, just in your own life, just, life period because it really can be such a beautiful thing truly but so let's just go on about uh you know just your background and just your drive into music so uh let me ask when did you first start picking up the uh, guitar well i grew up in a musical family my dad is a jewish clergy he's a cantor so i grew up with music in my house um, I started taking piano lessons at a really young age and was always singing in my house. Um, and when I was in high school, uh, I thought that learning to play guitar would help me find a girlfriend. And so I started learning a bunch of, I picked up a guitar and started writing cover songs. Um, but then really late in high school, um, despite my, you know, mixed success, the, <laughs> uh, using guitar as a, as a 
vehicle for trying to date. Um, I went to a music festival and I saw Sam Beam from Iron and Wine play a solo set of his own, you know, his, his songs. It's about a 30 minute set at this music festival in Michigan. And it somehow like that, that the way that he was playing the guitar and, um, expressing himself through these songs like moved me in a way I hadn't been moved before and I remember just having this real intense feeling like I want to do that I want to be able to do that and um really from there uh started to write and have been writing songs uh ever since this is just so amazing how just one person can be such a such a powerful influence and so at that Sam Beam show, what do you think most, um, what do you think was like one of the biggest factors or just biggest parts of his like performance that just influenced you the most? I think it was really the authenticity, like the, it was felt like he was channeling something deep within himself that felt, that was like clearly so personal to him, but also so deep, so like powerfully accessible to me. And that connection that I could feel like among people in the crowd with him on stage, like that's the, like, I didn't necessarily un fully understand what that would feel like as a performer until later on. Um, but I think it was really that, uh, that vehicle for connection that um, inspired me in the moment. That vehicle for connection. And is, I'm curious, is that something you want to pass on to um, your audience when you're performing? Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I I mean, I love to to perform in lots of different settings, but most uh, the, the the greatest gift for me as a performer is an is a listening room audience where I can like really uh, connect with people in the space where I'm performing and um, be able to you know both you know pour my heart into a performance and also like. <laughs> by opening myself up, I think that like vulnerability often is something that when it's modeled, it's mirrored. And, mm. and so when in, in that kind of performance setting, when I am modeling that, when I'm kind of giving that, I found that, you know, people will tell me that they like are able to help, you know, process hard things that are going on in their life or feel a connection to, um, you know, some part of themselves that they didn't know they needed to feel in that moment or, um, uh, you know, uh, just like experience me the, the meaning, um, through that. And, and that's honestly the, the greatest gift that I can, um, both receive as a performer and, and try to give. Yeah. It's just that connection. That's just a positive a sense of just like love that you're giving to them and they are in turn giving to you through just listening in and just participating in your show. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. It reminds me so much of, do you listen to uh, Krung Ben? Oh, I, I've heard some of their stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It reminds, you, what you just described reminds me of this time. There was a show, there was that show, and they uh, they were performing really amazing. You have to go to one of their shows. And uh, in one instance, the guitarist, he, um, he, he spoke to the crowd and he said, uh, he said to, for everybody to just uh, turn to our neighbor and just like introduce yourselves to each other. And that is his, everybody there had met someone. Everybody there had someone they could enjoy music with. They knew a name. And that moment of just like, it was just a moment of community right there of just that same like love that, uh, you know, that wheel connection that really just brought everybody together even more. You can't, you can't you can't fake it it's like there's just no way it's just it's just right there it's all real and all beautiful yeah. isn't it totally yeah truly uh you know when you're when you're writing your songs and when you're putting the chords together and recording and everything what's the one thing you always want to uh want to have like get done first like is it just like the melody is it the uh chorus like what is it i think you know so many people have you know, different <laughs> songwriting and production processes that work for them and for me songwriting has always primarily been emotive like i 
often start with uh, actually like, you know, checking in with how I'm feeling or kind of what I'm wanting to write about and uh, playing through it on the guitar um, or on the piano. And um, so it's usually then a melody will kind of come from there um, and lyrics start to sort of flow from there. Um, uh, in terms of recording, you know, this last record, this forthcoming record that I, I'm, I'm really excited to, to start um, releasing soon. I work with an incredible producer named Justin Glasgow um, here in LA in Eagle Rock um, and, you know, brought him 18 demos and we kind of, you know, went through each of the songs and kind of honed in on 10 um, and then just took it a track instrument at a time and, and built it from the ground up. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that writing process has always really worked well for me though. I think I've been trying to challenge myself to try writing, um, with other prompts to co-write with other artists, to learn from other types of, of processes. You know, I think I used to treat songwriting as, like uh, amateur photography, right? Like I would sit down and if I wrote a song in one sitting, like a photo, that was that, I wouldn't edit it, I wouldn't revisit it um, and, and change anything. It's like, okay, well that song represents a snapshot in time, like an unedited photo. photo. Um, and, you know, over the years, just learning from other writers and trying to work on my own skills and, and work on tools to, you know, I've shifted my process, you know, more to really make sure that I'm communicating what I want to communicate. Um, and that the songs land as powerfully as they can. Um, so I think I still am young on my journey as a songwriter of like learning more tools and, um, expanding my toolbox so that I can express myself and more fully and communicate more fully, but that's sort of the core of the process that's worked for me so far. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's worked out. You're pretty good. I'm glad, I'm glad to uh, glad to hear that because you're right. Everybody does have a different way of you know writing music or putting together you know the instrumentals and everything. Mm -hmm. So. Random question. What are some of your favorite chords to put in a song? Oh my gosh. Favorite chords. Uh, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, uh, you know, I like to, I, I like harmonies and I like, um, uh, really is, um, uh, it's just depend depends on the mood. Um, so I, I, I'm sorry if that's a, a bit of a non-answer, but that's the best okay. I've got you right now. It's okay. So I want to uh, dig a little deeper with, you know, your songwriting um, process and just how you put together music. Because here's the thing. We both know music is one of the, if not the greatest form of art there is uh, in the world. But that just said it's an art, which means there's never one way to do it it's you're it's kind of just free form you're free to use however you see fit and people have done have done music through like through like non vocals through like unusual instruments some have actually funny enough use um did a little bit of both they one uh, artist bjerk used uh, in her album uh, medulla use only like human vocals as instruments so it's yeah so it's always a unique way to do it have you ever tried to like that means that brings me to my next question when you've been um, putting songs together whether through just as a single or just you know as a thought would you what was the time where you tried to like maybe like experiment or try something new or unique with yours you can name a time that's a good question. Um, I deeply respect people who dive in deep into music production as an artist and learn how to self-produce. Um, and I have never trusted my own skills or put in the time necessary 
to feel confident enough in my own production skills to like self-produce and self-release. Um, and, you know, maybe that will change at some point in my life. Um, but I'm really grateful to have, you know, uh, kind of decided to take a, the path where I'm, you know, working with folks who have, you know, where, who, where production is their, their craft and we can kind of work together to, um, bring a vision to life. Um, and so, you know, in terms of trying new things, I mean, to, to, for me, this whole process of recording this upcoming record has been, um, I, I feel like I've learned so much every time we would step into the studio and, um, you know, not just, you know, record the basics, but, um, play around with different combinations of instrumentation, um, and creative use of gear, you know, running keyboards and synths through guitar pedals or um, taking a vocal part and throwing a vocal part through different guitar pedals and moving things around to create, you know, interesting and unique sounds. Um, and, you know, combining, um, you know, light touch um, production with, uh, you know, like kind of big anthemic full band type sound. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the soundscape that we've created for this record. And um, to me, it's felt like uh, something totally different and deeper than anything that I've produced before. So I'm excited to start, I'm excited to start sharing these songs soon. Different and deeper. I like that. I mean, it's stepping in a whole new direction, going on a whole new field. It's got to feel... Is, does, it, does it ever make you? Does it make you feel like kind of just like anxious and kind of a uh, little concerned in a way? Just uh, all all the work you put in, and now it's finally about to come out like this. Like it's a constant source of anxiety. In fact, like half the record is about my own anxiety. But all that being said, you know, it's uh, I'm so incredibly pr proud of the music. Like I'm not anxious at all about the music. The music feels so good it's more of like you know 30 to fifty thousand songs drop on spotify every day and um you know to me i so passionately want to be able to continue making music like this to have my music have the impact on people that i think that it can have and to be able to perform um and share that and um and so to, to be able to do that i need to find a way to to break through a little bit. And, and that I think to me is more of where the anxiety s steps in rather than, you know, around the music itself, the music itself, I feel like so, uh, so, so excited and good about. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad. Um, so glad you feel that way because you know, you've worked so hard on this album. You've spent a lot of time putting it together and now it's finally about to come out. It's all your hard work finally about to pay off. So you know, to be proud of that moment right there. But okay, I'm just gonna ask one more question in regards um, to songwriting. So, you know, it's just do you did you hear about the um, like because I want to bring it on to like sort of the controversy and sort of the um, obstacles for songwriters. You, have you um, heard about the uh, lawsuit with uh, Ed Sheeran in regards to his song "Thinking Out Loud"? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And in that instance where you know, his, his um, sort of melody and his songs did sound similar to uh, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, for those of you who don't know, uh, he was uh, sued for that because uh, his lyrics, just as I said, sounded so similar. He's actually um, accused of plagiarism. It's, uh, it's easy to get lost in... Um, to uh, be accidentally like uh, trapped in that sort of controversy where you might be accidentally copying off someone else. And in fact, George Harrison for My Sweet Lord was later sued for that same thing. Um, so it's really just, um, it can be sort of tricky, I know. And uh, all the same, it's really something that I couldn't help but think about. So I was going to ask you about it, Ethan. What was, how do you look at sort of these instances where a songwriter um, such as Ed Sheeran might find himself um, in situations like this? I mean, it's really tricky. I think, um, I, like, I really can empathize with both 
with, with both with the two perspectives that on one hand, um, it's really important for the integrity of um, the music industry for people who write songs and um, rele and release music have their intellectual property protected such that, um, you know, they don't get copied or scammed or, you know, taken advantage of. Um, on the other hand, like music is something where like the whole history of music is are people building off of each other and inspired by what already exists. And um, with the just sheer volume of content and music that's being created and released, the likelihood that something that you write sounds like something else that's out there is extremely high. Um, you know, I think when you're at Ed Sheeran's level, you know, probably should like make sure that your legal team is like doing their due diligence before putting stuff out, right? Like it's, it's unfortunate that that situation had happened. Um, you know, I, and at the same time, um, I also think artists need to be able to, um, you know, write and, and, uh, and create, um, and express without fear that, you know, their career will be ended by a lawsuit because they have a similar song, a song that sounds similar or something else, because that's almost impossible to avoid at a, um, at a fundamental level. So I don't really know what the right answer is in this situation, but I can empathize with like both parties in that, in that case. Yeah, you definitely empathize with both parties. And yeah, this is, it's so funny how this isn't the only time um, somebody's been accused of plagiarizing uh, Marvin Gaye. I mean, back in 2014 with Blurred Lines. And so, yeah, but I mean, first of all, Marvin Gaye is just a phenomenal singer. Um, his music has been just legendary. Absolutely. But yeah, just like you said, man, be a right answer is just, but respect and, and understanding of both parties. So as on the songwriter side, I just want to hear a little bit more about uh, your influences. Uh, who are, this is another random question. Who are three artists you admire the most? Goodness, you know, um, I would say in terms of my own influences and inspirations as a songwriter and as a musician, um, Justin Vernon is at the top of the list for me. Um, pretty much everything he touches, I find wow. to be so deeply inspiring. Um, Paul Simon has also been a huge songwriting influence and musical influence over the years. Um, and, you know, digging deep in terms of like, emo uh, like the emotion of music and, and, uh, that craft Sam Cooke is also another huge inspiration from, although I'm not a soul singer, I'm not an R and B singer. Um, Sam Cooke has always been, uh, one of my favorites. Um, can't deny the man's talent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, there are so many. It's hard to Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan. Joni um, Mitchell, Bob Dylan. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. It's um, we are blessed in this time to be, you know, on the shoulders of like so many incredible artists and musicians that have brought music forward, um, and. Um, you know, I think it would be impossible to, to like, to name them all. <laughs> you can't. There's too many good ones. And it's so... And it's, it's really just, it's incredible how many artists, like, come. And when they come, like, you're able, they have the it's like they're, they have their own brand. Like you're able to recognize them, whatever song they put out or how long they're, you know, out of the spotlight. Once they come, you, you just know who it is. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really, it's really 
honestly beautiful. It's, it's so cool how they're able to do it. But that makes me curious about uh, you, Ethan. When you look at all these uh, musicians, all these singers, songwriters, and artists who have all been able to just set their own brand where they're distinct, where they're recognizable. And considering the billions of musicians and singers around the world, how do you intend to make Ethan Buckner, the Minnesota child, recognizable? How do you plan to make you, you? That's a good question. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, you know, again, I think for me, like what I have to offer are songs that I think are um, unique and uh, well, I guess that doesn't really even mean anything. Um, <laughs> like, I think that that can really move people, um, and um, help people uh, process their place in the world, like both in kind of thinking about what is it mean yeah what does it mean to be alive right now with like the world burning around us and um so many pressures on us and um then in our own little universes of our minds and in our and our hearts like um uh the challenge of like finding peace within um and i think that like my music kind of like fluctuates between that like deeply personal and the collective struggle um and, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we can kind of build a world around this record, um, videos and shows and, you know, other creative, um, tools to help kind of like bring all of that to life and, and give that to people. Um, so I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but we're, you know, it's in process. It's in process. Well, okay. But you know what? You're getting there. You're getting there pretty soon. We'll all be knowing Ethan Buckner. So, yeah, just just a great answer, man. But uh, I just have you know just one more question regarding uh, you know your career in music because you know there was a time where artists were making a lot more money in regards to uh, album sales, or tours, concerts, merchandise. And now we're in a really interesting time, I've got to say, because of streaming services, you know, Apple, Spotify, SoundClass. And now artists are getting a lot less money. They'll rely, they'd be relying a lot more on you know, tours and everything. So it's, and you see it now on Spotify where there's like um, little donation buttons so that money can go specifically to the author. And that's been really important. Um, for a lot of people. So, you know, in your, where you're standing right now, Ethan, how are you planning to sort of navigate this weird uh, transition to the um, streaming service world so you can continue to, you know, stay stable um, doing what you love? That's a good question. And I'm, I'm looking to build more of a team around me that who, who people who understand how to best um, you know, essentially like sustain and grow the project and the business that is the Minnesota child. Right. Um, I have, you know, an active pre-order campaign through my website. And so people can go and pre-order the record directly through me, um, which has been really helpful and, and, helping me cover some of the costs of producing the record and um, creating all of the content that needs to go with it. Um, I think it still have a long way to go, but it's been um, amazing to have some of that support. Um, you know, to do that, actually, one of the things that I did this past year, which I thought was pretty unique um, and, and meaningful to me was I did a series of house concerts where I like brought people who were kind of close to me um, to uh, 
like listen to rough mixes of the record that was in process. I played some of the songs live. I had some videos and photos and told stories about the songs and really kind of like brought people in instead of just saying, Hey, like donate to my album campaign. Let me like, let you listen to it, let you experience it, feel it. And then if you really, you know, if you see what I'm the vision, if you can like, if this is moving you, then go ahead and, and invest in it, pre-order. And, um, and that has felt really good um as a um you know as a as a way of bringing people in um but i think i have a long way to go to really make it sustain itself all right good answer thank you for that so now let's dive away from uh, music for a second and talk about you and as an activist so you are the senior manager uh, energy infrastructure with uh, earthworks so just First of all, I got to know just what is how, how do you view um, Earthworks and what they're doing? Um, and I've been with this organization for a little over six years. Um, and, you know, uh, the, our organization works with communities on the front lines of extractive industry. Uh, so we work on oil, gas and mining issues. And I primarily work on the side, um, on the oil and gas side, uh, working with community groups, mostly in the Gulf South and a bit in Appalachia that are fighting, you know, big oil, gas and petrochemical projects that would, you know, uh, exacerbate climate change and um, add toxic pollution to communities that are already um, hard hit by industrial pollution, um, um, which are mostly low income communities of color, indigenous communities, um, that are targeted by the fossil fuel industry for their dirty projects. Um, so I've been doing that work for a long time. Um, it feels really fundamental and, and important to, um, you know, the our ability as a species to survive, to figure out a way to move away from fossil fuels and towards a more just, equitable, and uh, sane energy system um and you know like the way i like to see things you know it's like look you know we're not gonna like turn off the the gas we're not gonna like just stop the taps tomorrow we can't do that um but if you can't get yourself out of a hole if you don't stop digging further um and um you know i see the oil and gas industry real intent on bringing us all down with them um and sort of just continuing to grow and expand and expand and expand regardless of the consequences. Um, and um, that needs to that needs to end so that we can actually, you know, manage this transition, the energy transition in a way that is just and and, um, and helps us survive through the climate crisis. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, so it's been I know it's been a been a long and uh, arduous battle because there is so much happening. But I think the worst part about it is just the lack of attention given to it by the public because there'll be some you know, news or some politicians will tell you like, oh, climate change isn't real or don't worry about it or everything. And at the same time, you know, you know, passing like bills that would actively help, you know, oil companies and gas and everything. So there's really just a wrong shift in narrative going around. And it's caused a lot of indifference, especially in the public. Because I know if everybody got around to it, we'd be seeing huge changes uh, already. So how do you uh, look at and want to challenge this um, this false narrative of climate change being just a hoax? Well, I think that their climate denial is really not as much of an obstructive issue now as it was maybe 10 years ago. I think um, polling shows a vast majority of people in this country believe what the vast, vast, vast consent, scientific consensus is saying um, that climate change is real and it's caused by burning fossil fuels. Um, I think the big challenge now is less around climate denial and more around obstru uh, obstructionism and delay tactics and greenwashing. That is, you know, oil and gas companies saying, hey, we can use some magic technology that'll allow us to continue doing everything that we're currently doing and not change our practices at all. 
um, and you know we're gonna invent stuff that sucks carbon out of the air and blah 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 you know and uh, and we'll solve we're we're gonna be part of this the solution to climate change and we know that those like you know um, so many of the um, so much of what the fossil fuel industry is doing right now is serving to confuse the narrative and to try to and to co-opt um, the uh, transition um, that is so desperately needed. Uh, you know, I also think one of the interesting things uh, that has happened in the past number of years is like just how quickly our entire economy and society shifted the way that we did things because of the COVID pandemic, right? Like there is the crisis, the emergency, the immediate emergency made things that otherwise would have been viewed as completely impossible or would never happen, happened almost overnight. Um, uh, and I think if we were to treat climate change with the same level of urgency as a public health crisis, um, you know, like it sort of shows that our, our systems actually have the capacity to withstand and, uh, you know, like massive changes in a short period of time. Um, if the political will is there to put those changes into motion. Um, and so I think that, that it, that is actually to me like a bizarrely hopeful thing. Um, and I think another challenge right now, too, is just, you know, the American public is like notoriously, you know, we're all kind of notoriously short term thinkers, right? Like, sometimes it's hard to, to look. And when you've got, you know, issues like inflation and uh, that are really actually affecting people's lives and ability to make ends meet, and we have so much inequality in this country, it makes looking at something like how do you, people see the connection between that and, you know, addressing climate change as like this issue that a lot of people don't see as like affecting their day-to-day -day lives. Even though that we know that sort of the same system, the same kind of forces that are, you know, exacerbating the climate crisis are also the same forces that are driving inequality and, um, and you know, uh, causing a lot of the short-term problems that people are facing. So I think it's, we have a, a lot of work to do to kind of like shift the narrative and um, help people feel a sense of, um, uh, feel their own, sense of their own power to, to help move things in the right direction. Okay, I understand. It's honestly so beautiful, though, when people are able to come together on uh, a common issue. Like, we've seen it with the Women's March, uh, Black Lives Matter, the March for Our Lives. And when you... <laughs> When you look at these like movements and just these massive protests, massive marches dedicated to like social justice or climate change, one way or another, like how how do you what what does it really just make you uh, feel down? Does it give you like um, hope, or are you still just like uh, there's still so much further to go than this? It's sort of both, you know. I mean, I think uh, we have these moments that are like capture the public imagination. Or that has like, those have always moved this country and the world forward. Um, and I think a lot of the extremism that we're seeing on the right wing right now is a result of the tangible progress in moving this country forward that has the result of really powerful social movements over the past many, many, many years that build on movements before them. Um, so, you know, I think we're probably due for a moment like that, given where things are. I don't know what it's going to be, you know, these things kind of like ebb and flow. And um, but I, I think that, you know, the flexing that muscle of coming together and demonstrating people power is really important. And it's inspiring when those moments happen, um, mm -hmm. despite the tragedies that often trigger them. Yeah. But it's really those tragedies that just further prove how much everybody hates that that tragedy happened. Yeah, it's just the people when I take it when the George Floyd um, murder happened and pretty much the entire freaking world was like saying no to racism. It was 
and you go on Instagram, that's all you saw was just announcing that action. It's almost, it was honestly just kind of breathtaking how massive just this movement like um, impacted the world and everything. And uh, I, I honestly don't even have any more words for it. It was just breathtaking. How would you describe it? Um, it was an incredibly important moment um, that I think is still having an impact on the fight against systemic racism that's hundreds of years old. Um, and, you know, I think it was really powerful to see so many people and so many institutions um, you know, denouncing systemic racism and showing up in the streets and um, uh, like kind of getting caught up in that moment of the whirlwind. Um, and I think what becomes the real challenge is like after the dust settles from moments like that and the inertia of racism is still, you know, like, you know, it's it has like moved the conversation forward, but I do think that it is, um, that like, yeah, that, uh, it's much more difficult to like eradicate these like deeply entrenched injustices than it is to post something in your Instagram saying that something's fucked up, you know? So like, uh, it's revealed, you know, like where, who and what and where like is willing to do the hard work and, you know, um, I like, you know, we get reminded that we still have a really, really long way to go. Um, and so the backlash gets stronger, right? Like, you know, when like the forces that are denouncing systemic racism get stronger, the forces that want to protect white supremacy get more reactive. And um, I think part of the like extreme polarization that we are seeing in this country is partially a result of that. Um, and I think that's a reminder of like, okay, we can't let up. This is, these aren't things that these aren't issues that are like solved in any one moment, but this is like going to be a generational, this is continues to be a generational struggle. Yeah. But there's another interesting note. Everything that you know, you're fighting for, just the environment for social justice and end to systemic racism and end to just continuing to pollute, disenfranchise communities, all of this has been labeled un under this, has been put under this label, woke. That's, that's another um, way of like shifting narratives that we've talked about a little obstruction right here. It's just like, Saying like you want to like end racism or you're challenging white supremacy or you're like fighting for climate change and like a politician like take you know, just somebody will call it like just you're being woke you're being just out there right there As, but people are still like not letting other people are still like you know just denouncing injustice where they see it so how are you like looking at this new um, like label that's uh, people are being given. Well, to me, it's actually almost kind of funny. It's like if you were to ask right wingers like what woke means, like most people actually couldn't really even tell you, um, <laughs> because like it's shorthand for like oh, like acknowledging and accounting for historic injustice or like seeing and responding to like truth. You know, I mean, it's like it's become this, it's like a catch-all phrase that's somewhat meaningless, but really just means like, um, uh, <laughs> like, like, yeah, sure. Like whatever. Like I'm not offended by it because it doesn't, it's so like, um, uh, it's such, it's weak. It's a, it's a weak ass retort. Um, because it really means absolutely nothing. And if you think about what it actually does mean, it's like, yeah, well, you actually would you rather just like have your eyes closed to reality like is that the opposite of woke which is just like asleep at the wheel um or in denial of the truth um you know like the efforts in place in uh so many jurisdictions in america that are now like doing things like 
banning, trying to ban books and change students' curriculum and like deny the reality of our social context and history. Like yeah, we've seen that story before and it doesn't end well. Um, you know, um, I'm Jewish. I know what happens when you start like banning books. Um, it, it's a slippery slope. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, I don't really find, I think that, that like, this is part of the, like, it's a, to me, it's actually what makes me feel hopeful is that to me, it's actually a reflection of the power of movements to actually challenge systemic racism, that it's create that like the reaction to it has gotten crazier and crazier because the like, you know, white supremacy is going to like rear its ugly head to protect itself as much as possible. Um, and I think that's sort of reflected in some of the like banana ape shit stuff happening on the right. Yeah. See, so it's comical to a point where you're almost just like, yeah, sure. Woke. Like, yeah, okay. Whatever. What are you trying to well, say? Like, yeah. It's almost like, using the way you see it, it's, it's almost like kind of a compliment right there. It's just like, yeah, I'm opening my, I've opened my eyes to, like just the injustice you yeah. have not. Yeah, you know, I think at the same time, I think that like on the left, we often are like very self-defeatist um, mm. and are, are, I think have to like, it, we need to be better at embracing nuance, at giving people opportunities to grow and change, at like having a an open door in the movement to get stronger. I think sometimes people on the left, and this is what I think frustrates some people is like people on the left sometimes are like more interested in being ideologically right than we are in actually building power and winning um, and like conquering the forces of, of evil that are out to, you know, sustain all the systems that are killing the planet and oppressing people. So I think we need to like, we need to, we need to kind of figure that out. Um, or we'll kind of like fight each other to death. Um, and I, I've seen that happen in a lot of different movements over the years. And um, so I think that's part of what's part of our task ahead. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Self-defeatist. I hadn't, hadn't thought of it uh, that way. So you, you may see in a whole new perspective right there. <laughs> um. But yeah, still so much uh, work to be done and more people are hopping onto it. And there is still this crazy polarization. And I don't know when it will like be brought down, like cease, but still, I know you're still fighting that fight, just continuing to uh, show up and just, you know, give your support for whatever can help the environment, help the people, especially disenfranchised communities. So, yeah, I respect that right there. Uh, thank you for your contributions to that. But uh, I have uh, two more questions for you. These are my last two questions. All right. First things first. Now, I asked this to my episode 28 guests, and I want to ask it to you, Ethan. What is change to you? How would you define the word change? change is the nature of reality that's how i would define it there is no there's nothing that is true in this world other than constant change uh down to the cellular level of our bodies to the ever-expanding universe that we are in um and so i think you know as humans we are like constantly trying to pin down this idea of like permanence. I found this in my own life. Um, and I think um, part of like the, how we make meaning of our lives and how we like stay connected to reality. Um, and um, to me that that change is just like a fundamental truth of, as a part of what it means to be alive and, and exist in this, in this universe. And so we have to, figure out how to um how to dance with it i guess i see okay i understand that we gotta dance with it so now for my last question in your journey both through working with 
um, Earthworks and through your uh, music career as the Minnesota Child. Who are the people you are most grateful for that have like supported you uh, in your endeavors? My goodness. Um, you know, I would say my family. I'm very fortunate and everyone is able to say this. And I'm very, very close with my immediate family and um, have learned so much from them and uh, am so grateful to have had their support and uh, um, and closeness throughout my life. Um, you know, my fiance, Heather, is like, especially with this like music journey I'm on has been like constantly a source of uh, support and um, accountability and um, creative ideas and um, uh, inspiration. Um, you know, I, I, in terms of my work on climate, I've had so many amazing mentors over the years, um, there are too many to name, um, and my mentors and their mentors, you know, there's, there's so much, um, to say, but, you know, I'll, I will, I will, I'll leave it there that, you know, I, I think, um, it's just been, a wonderful uh, journey to have been able to learn from so many people. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for the answer, Ethan. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for episode 36 of the upcoming. I want to give another huge thank you to my uh, guest for tonight, uh, Ethan Buckner, the Minnesota child. Thank you so much for coming on and just talking with me, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to, to chat with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So ladies and gentlemen, that is it for episode 36. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. We stream on Sundays. That's when we release the episodes on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And so, yeah, just be sure to tune in for the next amazing episode because we only bring the absolute best thank you for tuning in to the upcoming if you like this be sure to follow us on spotify amazon music pandora stitcher and google Podcasts. and be sure to follow us on instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast best yet to come take care everybody